We've been following the bloodline the last several weeks. That scarlet thread of redemption from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Garden of Eden into the very courts of eternity. We've looked at Abraham and Isaac. We've looked at the promise in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. We've considered Rahab, Isaiah's prophecy, Psalm 22. We've looked at so many different texts of Scripture. But this is Good Friday, and it's all about Jesus. So what I'd like to do is briefly continue the bloodline through three different segments of our Lord Jesus' life up until the time that he went to the cross. You know, when you drive down the street here on the freeways or even down some of the side roads, you see billboards. And billboards are outdoor advertising. Uh, people are trying to get you to buy something, do something, go to an event, a concert, something. They want you in on what they're doing. They're saying, in effect, you need this. That's what a billboard is all about. They want you to look at it, get distracted, and have an accident. No, I'm just kidding. They want you to look at it and say, I, I, that's, I'm going to go to that, or I, I, I do need that. For the last several thousand years, God has been posting a billboard throughout eternity. And that is that God loves you. God cares for you. God has great affection for you. He's been telling people how much he loves them. And the billboard that he uses to display his love is called the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. It was never an afterthought. It was never an oops moment. God didn't go, well, nothing's working out. I guess plan B will be the cross. Because we know from the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was always plan A from God's perspective. He knew he was going to send his son to redeem the world. Back in the 1800s, a man painted a very famous portrait of Jesus Christ. His name was Holman Hunt, and I think it was 1877. Can't be sure. I wasn't alive. But he painted a picture of Jesus at his carpentry shop in Nazareth. And, and the sun is setting, and he is inside the shop. The sun is coming through the window. It clearly shows Jesus laying down his carpenter's tools at the end of a long day. And the picture shows Jesus stretching his arms like he's yawning. And the way he stretches them and the way the sun hits him, it casts a long shadow behind him on the wall of the carpentry shop that is unmistakably in the shape of a cross. On the shelves is a hammer, along with some nails, to further make that story more poignant. In the foreground is Mary, his mother, with a chest that she opens up that have the gifts that the Magi brought at his birth or when he was a child of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now that artist, Holman Hunt, was trying to bring a message, and that is the shadow of the cross is a long shadow that casts all throughout history. And the Bible shows us that as we've been following the bloodline. But I mentioned three specific 
instances in Jesus' life. I, I want to consider something when he was a child, when he grew up, and just before he died, when he was just alone with those he was training, his disciples. So consider Jesus as a minor, as a man, and finally as a mentor. We know when he was a child that magi from the east came and brought him gifts. We all know the story. We usually go through it every Christmas. They brought, it says, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. myrrh. See, you all know the story. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All very costly items. All items that would bring a, a great price if one were to sell them in that day. They were also emblematic gifts. Gold is fitting for a king. And Jesus indeed was the king. In fact, Herod heard the rumor that somebody has been born called the king of the Jews. Jesus took that title even by Pontius Pilate on the cross, king of the Jews. When Jesus returns, he won't just be the king of the Jews. He's going to wear a sign that says, king of kings and lord of lords. King of everything. So it was fitting that at his birth, he was given the gift of gold, fitting for a king. He was also given the gift of frankincense. That's a substance that the priests would use in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. It would bring a beautiful scent to those priests who were offering it in those places. It was emblematic of the priesthood. Again, very fitting for Jesus to be given frankincense because he is our great high priest, the Bible tells us. The writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who was unable to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. So he's our stand-in. He's our priest. He's our king. He's our priest. But that third gift can I just say it was a weird gift? Myrrh. You know, have you ever given a gift that just bombs? It's like, that was the wrong gift. Or have you ever gotten one like that? So one year, um, I was single, and I had a boss, a doctor, who gave me as a gift for Christmas, caviar. Now, I, I, I didn't even know what that was. And I said, what is this? And somebody said, that's caviar. Open it. It's, you eat it. I go, you're kidding, right? So I open this little thing, and I smell it, and I go, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. I don't know who in their right mind would, what is this? And they're little black fish eggs. But it was not the right gift for me. Surfboard wax, more fitting. <laughs> caviar, not so much. Then I remember the time I gave a gift that was the gift that bombs. And I gave my brother for Christmas a book. He said, what's wrong with that? Well, it was his book. <laughs> he owned the book already, but I just thought he hadn't seen this book. It's way back in the closet. Nobody knows it's there. I'm going to wrap it up and give it to him. He opened the gift and he goes, what? You're giving me my own book for Christmas? So it was a, it was a lame gift. If you're Mary and Joseph and somebody gives you gold, you're honored. If somebody gives you frankincense, you're moved. But if somebody gives you gift, you scratch your head and go, what, what? 
And why, why am I saying that? Because it was used to embalm dead people. Myrrh was used to embalm the dead. Herodotus, a Greek historian, tells us that the Egyptians used myrrh extensively to take the stench away from a decaying corpse. Myrrh. The Jews also used myrrh for the same reason. They would bury somebody immediately on that same day, and they would place myrrh often in between the folds of the linen that they wrapped the body with. It happened with Jesus. John chapter 19, Nicodemus brought to the tomb 100 pounds of myrrh mixed with aloe. They were going to wrap that in the folds when they buried Jesus. So it was highly emblematic that Jesus at his birth was given myrrh because it was a bloodline prophecy, so to speak, that that's the reason this child was born. This child was born for the distinct reason of death. He's born to die. It's interesting, is it not, that myrrh was associated with Jesus' birth and death, early childhood and death. He was buried with myrrh. He was given myrrh. Something else you may not be aware of that the Hebrews associated a particular mountain in Israel with myrrh. In fact, the word myrrh in Hebrew is the Hebrew word mor. We would write it M-O-R, mor. And there's a mountain in Israel called Mount Moriah, the hill of myrrh, the hill associated with myrrh. They always associated myrrh and Moriah with sacrifice because of Abraham almost sacrificing his son. What's interesting about that is that happens to be the very same mountain God the Father didn't almost sacrifice his son, but followed through and did indeed sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah at the place of myrrh, the very substance given to Jesus when he was born. Incredible. That's when he was a minor. Jesus grew up. He became a man. We know that. He lived to age 33 when he was crucified. When he became a man and he started his earthly ministry, he went down to a place called the Jordan River because there was a man that Jesus knew all of his life, his cousin, in fact, named John, John the Baptizer. And John was down there baptizing people, but if you know anything about John, he was like this crazy hippie in the desert, right? He grew his hair long, he ate bugs, he wore wild fur on him, and, and he's just this, and he yelled at people. He'd see people and go, repent, sinner. You know, it's not the kind of a message that people don't go, I'm going to go to that church next week. I love that message. That guy's so friendly. And then he said, quoting the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is important. Quoting the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Oh, but he's not done with his sermon yet. He said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which doesn't bear forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now he's quoting Isaiah chapter 5. One thing you learn about John the Baptist, the dude loved the book of Isaiah. He quoted from it a lot. 
He goes on to say this, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but one is coming mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he elaborates, his winnowing hand is in his his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, here's the deal about John the Baptist. John the Baptist believed in a coming Messiah, and he came to believe that his cousin, Jesus, was indeed the Jewish Messiah predicted by the Scripture. But John's view of the Messiah was the typical Jewish view, the ultimate view, that he would one day come as a living judge, not as a dying Savior. So he's quoting Isaiah, repent, you know, I'm making straight paths, winnowing fan is in his hand, he's going to burn up the threshing floor, fire's going to come. That's all true, by the way. All of that that is predicted about what the Messiah will one day do is true. just hasn't happened yet. So three things happen that change John the Baptist's tone a little bit. Number one, Jesus comes one day to the Jordan River and says, Hey, John, baptize me. Remember what John said? He said, baptize you? I need to be baptized by you. You don't need me to baptize you. Jesus said, let it happen. Let's fulfill all righteousness. So that shocked John because here is Jesus, his cousin, the Messiah, asking to get baptized. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was identifying with sinners, not yelling at them, becoming like one of them. Baptize me. He was baptizing unto repentance. That's why John goes, what are you doing? Jesus' answer is basically, I'm identifying with sinners. A second thing happened that was important. John saw the heavens open and the Holy Spirit appearing like what? Like a dove. That was significant to John the Baptist, who was from a priestly family. John knew something about doves. Doves were animals that people brought to sacrifice. You go, no, 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 you're wrong, Skip. They brought lambs to sacrifice. That's only if they could afford a lamb. If it was a poor family that couldn't afford a lamb, guess what they brought? A dove. The poorest of the poor would bring the dove. So Jesus identifies with sinners. Heavens open up. The Holy Spirit comes like a dove. God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then a third thing happens. Jesus leaves for six weeks. You know the story. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted by the devil. When Jesus leaves, what I believe happened, I can't prove it, but I can can surmise it. After seeing the heavens open and seeing a dove, and after Jesus getting baptized, I think John the Baptist went back and found the scrolls of Isaiah the prophet and started reading through them. And he kept reading, and he kept reading, and he came to Isaiah chapter 53, which says, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I think that changed John's whole tone of ministry. How do I know that? Because when Jesus comes back after six weeks in John chapter 2, 
John now sees his cousin coming, not to be baptized, but after being tempted, six weeks later, and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. You see the change? Before, he was just seeing Jesus as the ultimate judge of mankind, thinking of the ultimate act of King of kings and Lord of lords. He failed to see until now the intermediate act that first he must die on a cross to pay for the sins of mankind. Later on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus says a couple of things that get our attention. He said to Nicodemus, who came to visit him at night, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Then he also said this, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. There it is again, lifted up. If I am lifted up, I'll draw people to myself. Now, I've heard this misquoted for years by worship leaders, by pastors. Let's lift Jesus higher. Lift him up, church. Lift him up. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about us extolling him in worship. He's talking about being lifted up on a Roman cross. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because I read the next verse. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This is John's commentary now. This he said signifying by what death he would die. Can you imagine living your whole life knowing when you're going to die and how? When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the reason he sweat great drops of blood, I believe, is because he knew every second of what was about to transpire from the moment he was arrested falsely accused, taken before Pilate, scourged, brought back to the praetorium, taken out to Golgotha. He knew the stages of the crucifixion. He knew it all. And that brought great emotional, physical anxiety. But he was moving toward that. He always spoke about his hour, his hour, his hour. My hour has not yet come. Till finally, at the very end, he goes, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. Jesus as a minor, Jesus as a man, finally Jesus as a mentor. I'll make this quick. The last meal Jesus had with his men was in an upper room. They celebrated the Passover together. He took the familiar elements of the bread and the wine four cups of wine, the matzah bread that was so crucial and central to this long extended meal, marking the deliverance from the bondage of Pharaoh by the children of Israel into a new land through the desert. They know all that story. They're going through it. Suddenly Jesus takes the bread and he goes, he breaks and he goes, take and eat this. This 
is my body broken for you. There's the bloodline all the way through. Childhood, manhood, mentorship. He's training his men, final moments with them. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Same billboard, same message through the prophets, through the writings, through the gospels, through the epistles, all the way to the cross. My hour has come. Now is my hour. I've come, he said, for this very hour. This is why I'm here on earth, to do this, to die on that cross, to shed my blood so that anybody who trusts in me will be forgiven. I'll place all my, their sin on my body. I'll pay their punishment, and I'll let them freely have eternal life. Listen, the cross was so central to Jesus' purpose on earth that he regarded anybody pushing him away from that moment, that hour, this focus, this goal. He regarded anybody doing that as satanic. When Jesus said even to his own disciples, hey, um, heads up, I'm going to Jerusalem. Chief priests are going to beat me up. They're going to put me on a cross and I'm going to die. But then I'm going to be raised the third day. P.S. Third day. They forgot the P.S. Peter goes, no way, Lord. We're going to save you from that. We're not going to let that happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Why did he say that to Peter? It's like, whoa, this is Peter here. Don't get so harsh. It's Peter. Because Jesus recognized that voice. He recognized those six weeks when he was being tempted in the wilderness. And Satan said to Jesus, hey, you don't have to go to the cross. If you just bow down and worship me, I know you've come to redeem the world. I'll give it to you for nothing. You don't have to do anything. It's yours. All you have to do is worship. Jesus said, away with you. He knew that was his goal. So when Peter said, you don't have to go to the cross. We don't need a cross. You don't have to suffer. Get behind me, Satan. You've heard me quote Spurgeon for years, right? Charles Haddon Spurgeon. If by now you're not curious as to who he is, because I mention him like every week of my life, you should at least go on the internet and look him up. Because he's really cool. Charles Spurgeon said you can take all of theology and boil it down to four words. You want to know those four words, don't you? All of theology can be boiled down to four words. He died for me. He died for me. And what's the result? Forgiven. Forgiven. You trust in him. You believe in him. Oh, we just don't believe in him. We believe in him because a transaction was made on our behalf. We are sinners who deserve death. We've violated a holy God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, but God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this is why, this isn't Good Friday. This is Awesome Friday. This is great Super Friday. Because Jesus said, it is finished. Can't add to it. How grateful I am that I'm here to celebrate that with you. Um, our men and women are going to be passing out the elements. I'm going to uh, lead in prayer. They're going to be passing out the elements with a song, and then we're going to take 
communion together. But let's pray. Father, we have considered for, for weeks, for months, this idea of a scarlet thread, a, a, a bloodline, a bloodline being shown in the Scripture, and then eventually a cross, so that the bloodline was pointing to the lifeline. That's what the cross is. It's a lifeline. We were drowning, covered, encumbered, surrounded by multiple failures. We're born that way. It's part of human nature. You knew that, and you knew that we could never do anything to fix that. So you did. You came. You planned from the very beginning to send one, not just anyone, but the perfect one, the sinless one, the spotless one, the flawless one, the very Son of God, the one who lived a perfect life that we could never live and then died in our place. So all we have to do is believe, trust, commit, and you treat us like royalty, like the Son of God himself. For we are called sons and daughters of God. Lord, I pray for anyone who may have come who has not, not made Jesus Lord of their lives. Oh, they've heard this story in so many words, so many times, in so many places. It's never been real to them, but maybe right now in their hearts it's becoming that way. And if that's the case, right where you're sitting, right where you are seated, you might be here in this amphitheater, you might be watching online, listening by radio, you might be seeing this streamed in a number of different ways and places, you might be outside in that outer park where there are hundreds more, thousands more uh, here on campus, but away from this immediate scene. But maybe you need to ask Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior. If so, right now, right where you are, just say this to him. Say this. Say, Lord, I give you my life. I give you my life. I'm a sinner. I know it. I admit it. Forgive me. Forgive me. I believe you sent Jesus from heaven to earth. I believe he died on a cross and shed precious blood and bled to death for me. But then he rose again for my justification. I turn. I turn from my sin. I repent. I turn to you as Lord, as Savior, as Master. Give me your strength to live a life that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Skip Heitzig of Calvary Church. How will you put the truths that you learned into action in your life? Let us know. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.